Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. As we come to the end of 2022, I want to invite you to support the ministry of the Biblical Counseling Coalition financially. You can do so by sending a special year-end gift, or maybe this is the year that you can join us as a monthly giver and support the ministry on an ongoing basis for years to come. I hope that you have been blessed by this podcast and the many other ministry outlets that the BCC has to the public. But there are many other things that go on behind the scenes that most people are not aware of as we seek to build unity in the biblical counseling movement. If you're passionate about that, I pray that you would join us in that effort by supporting us financially. Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 15:14, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. It's a pleasure and delight to have you as part of our audience. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to jump online and give a special year-end gift to support the work of the BCC or sign up to become a regular giver who gives on a monthly basis. We are so thankful for all those who contributed to our strategic planning survey. We've been going through those results and looking at how you think we can best use the resources of the BCC for the next phase of ministry, and we'll be rolling out some new initiatives about that in 2023 and beyond. And if you want to get behind those initiatives and help continue to build unity in the biblical counseling movement around the world, please jump on and support the ministry of the BCC. Today's episode is an interview that I did with Edward Wild. He is an associated attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, and he is an editor and contributor to the new book, Legal Issues in Biblical Counseling. He's an ACBC certified counselor and teaches adjunct at the Masters University, contributes to the Journal of Biblical Soul Care, and has also contributed to Men Counseling Men. I had a wonderful interview with Ed and really appreciated his heart and his passion for biblical counseling, as well as helping churches, biblical counselors be equipped with knowledge of how to navigate the legal system. And I really appreciated in that book their heart and their care for counselees. And just a reminder that when we ask these questions, we also need to be considering the people that we're ministering to and how they are being impacted by the legal system and how we can walk alongside them with that. So I hope that you enjoy the episode, really encouraged and really informed and uh, encouraged to go get that book as well. Thanks again for listening. Well, Ed, thanks so much for being with us today. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Uh, my name is Edward Wild. Uh, I'm an attorney in Los Angeles. I work in particular at Pasadena. Um, I've been a civil attorney since 1989, done a number of different things in that capacity. Uh, I am also or have been um, a staff pastor at a church in Burbank, worked there for about seven years. And in that place, I, among other things, oversaw all the counseling at the church, did thousands and thousands of hours of counseling. I'm a professor at the Masters University in Santa Clarita. I've taught law there, a number of classes involving church, uh, theology, primarily in the counseling department there. So I'm a professor of biblical counseling. Most of my work centers around the MABC program and the undergraduate program. I speak, I speak, I teach psychology and um, different legal classes. Um, I'm married to my wife, Kelly. We have had a total of five children. One of our children died during his first year. He's with the Lord. It was a very difficult situation. 
And I can say quite honestly that if somebody does not have the hope of the resurrection, I don't know how you possibly get through something like that. So that's generally who I am. I'm a certified counselor with ACBC. I'm an affiliated attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom. So I think that would be the general sorts of things which would be applicable to this. <laughs> yeah. I'm also a Dodger fan, and I'm not bitter at all about the Astros being in the World Series. And you somehow uh, managed to squeeze it all into 24 hours a day, because uh, unless you've, you've figured out how to stretch time, so that's good. I have not done that yet. <laughs> and one of, the things, one of the reasons I wanted you to be on the podcast, too, is you also were one of the primary editors and contributors to a new book, Legal Issues and Biblical Counseling, Direction and Help for Churches and Counselors. So I appreciate that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that book today. But before we jump into that, could you tell our audience, I know a lot of people are familiar with ADF or Alliance Defending Freedom, but for those who don't, could you tell them a little bit about that ministry and what the mission is? Okay. Alliance Defending Freedom is an organization of Christian attorneys and they primarily represent Christians in their interactions with the state. And Alliance Defending Freedom has a number of attorneys who are staff attorneys. Those are people who work full time and are dedicated to their particular mission. Those attorneys will appear throughout the United States. Um, so, for instance, you know, there's a the very famous Masterpiece Cakes case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an ADF case. Um, that poor man has been treated terribly. He is one of the kindest and most delightful people I've met. I'm very good friends with his son and he's been very poorly treated, but they will represent uh, people who are involved in those cases. But then ADF also has uh, affiliated attorneys. Affiliated attorneys are attorneys who are not on staff with ADF, but we agree with the mission of ADF We help ADF out. So my partner and I, uh, Michael Overing, and that's the name of the law office actually where I work, um, we do First Amendment work for various people. And so we've done First Amendment work for ADF. So we've appeared in, there's a case in front of the Supreme Court where we filed a brief on behalf of ACBC. Um, It's a case called 303 Creative, which is frankly a terrifying First Amendment issue. Um, And it has Uh, The state of Colorado has passed a law which is uh, horrifying in some of its aspects. I I really can't believe that we're even talking about some of the things. In that particular case, the state of uh, Colorado is actually compelling speech. Mm -hmm. They're requiring people under very serious threat to be required to repeat messages in this particular case about sexual orientation and sexual behavior that the state has deemed important. That's something frankly new in the history of the United States. We've never forced people to say things that they don't want to say. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. That's a, that's an important work. And that, that is one of the reasons, um, People are interested in asking questions, uh, especially from a biblical counseling perspective and why the book that you contributed to and edited is out. So could you tell uh, tell our audience, what was the catalyst of that book specifically? Well, the catalyst of the book specifically is that more and more the Christian ministry is running into difficulty when it comes to legal issues. So we do have the very obvious fact of the church-state interaction, and that's where the law is in a great deal of flux. But the other part of it is, is that having the background that I do being an attorney and having also been a pastor, um, I, I've learned that there's a number of interactions that take place between 
counseling work, ministry work generally, and the law, which a lot of pastors were unaware of. And so Dale Johnson, who's the current director of ACBC, and I started talking actually before COVID about the necessity of dealing with this because telephone calls would come into from various churches and they would be asking, hey, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? Telephone call gets back to me. We talk together, try to answer the questions. And so it became obvious that there was a significant need for um, ministers and biblical counselors in particular to have a greater awareness of how their work interacts with the law, not merely the state trying to regulate what we may say or not say, but just in a number of other areas that come up in trying to do counseling. Well, yeah, again, really appreciate you for that, because like you said, people have all these questions and don't know where to turn. So having a great resource like this is, is really helpful. Uh, we'll say I think a common disclaimer is we're not giving legal advice on this podcast. Oh, I think at the front of the book, we, you, you indicate really clearly it's not legal advice. And part of that is the reality we were talking about beforehand that law, case law changes all the time. Laws change all the time. So the specifics, uh, and we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later, people need to be cautious and, and research continually and be aware of the specifics related to their situation in their particular context today, not what uh, anybody's talking about or what anybody wrote 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but okay, by the way, can I underscore a point there? Just yeah, on that particular do. thing? There's two reasons why it's impossible to give legal advice out of a book or in a situation like this. One of them is, okay, so it's not just that the law is changing, it's that there are so many different jurisdictions. So every state has its own law. The federal government has its own law and the law varies from circuit to circuit. Within that, you have different laws in counties and cities. And so just the sheer number of laws makes it impossible to know. In fact, quite literally, nobody knows how many laws there are in the United States. There's actually a Twitter feed that's solely dedicated to ridiculous laws that exist throughout the United States. Like for instance, you have to get written permission if you want to get drunk at the National Zoo. I have no idea why somebody would want to get that or from whom you would get it, but they actually wrote a law about that. So anything that you can imagine is a subject of a law. The other thing is the application of a law in a particular situation is always very fact intensive. And one small fact, which may seem insignificant to someone who's not familiar with the nuances of the particular law, may change the outcome of a situation dramatically. So there's not just debates about what the laws mean, which is the fluidity of the law, or they change the law, but even which law is applicable and how that law would apply in the situation. So yes, there's, and that's, and by the way, that's one of the reasons that we had to start writing the book. Um, we were talking a little bit before we got to go into the recording. And one of the problems that I've seen repeatedly is a number of people believe they know what the law is. And they have these opinions about how the law functions. And so they go, oh, the law is this or the law is that. And quite often they're wrong. And the people who are most certain tend to have the least knowledge about it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a warning. And I think that that is one of the things that one of the questions I wanted to ask is where can people go if they, if they get into a situation where they need legal input or legal advice, or they want to make sure they are in compliance with the laws, where do they go to get that information? 
Okay. One of the things you would do is one of the purposes of the book is not to give you all the legal answers, but what you really need to do is you need to know when do I need legal help? What sorts of circumstances should I contact an attorney? So for instance, one of the classes I taught at master's for a number of years was business law to people who are getting a business degree at the place. And obviously I can't begin to teach them all of the nuances of business law. So for instance, they spend a couple of, you know, we spend a short period of time on contract law. When I'm in law school, I spend over one year, just introduction to contracts is an entire year of law school. I spend 10 hours on it in the business law class. So what I can teach them is these are the places where you could have problems with a contract, not this is everything you need to know about a contract. So the book is useful to flag the places where you would need to get legal assistance. How do you get legal assistance? Well, there'd be two ways. Um, if you do have these sort of First Amendment problems, the church-state interactions, um, an outfit like um, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, is a really good place to go. It's not the only one, certainly. It's the one I'm affiliated with. And they can help you either find a lawyer locally or help them yourselves, depending upon the circumstance. But those would be First Amendment types of questions. The state has said, I can't say X in my church. But there's a number of other legal issues which could arise, which are going to be dependent upon the relationships you have in your local community. So for instance, one area of law that people often don't think about is any counseling ministry, any church is has to function as a business at some level. Right. Um, are we going to be a nonprofit legal corporation? Are we going to be an LLC? Am I going to have any kind of formation at all? What are the employment laws which apply here? Um, are there any tax considerations which we need to have? If you're going to have a facility, you're going to need insurance. Those all are legal issues. And if you're going to answer those sorts of questions, you're going to need a lawyer in your area who's familiar with your local law and who has experience in these particular areas. So where do you go to get answers for that? A number of these places, it's have a relationship with a lawyer, somebody who lives in your city or nearby who can help you with these things. Yeah, and that is a chapter in the book, too, encouraging. And we had Todd on the podcast before to talk about that aspect and, and some others. So having a relationship with a local lawyer is one. And then I, I appreciate you highlighting uh, ADF and other organizations. And the book has a a list in the back of the book as well of organizations that might offer good legal advice too. So, um, no, I really appreciate that. Go back to that point where you said you get a common, one of the common responses you get to the book is people who think they know the law, uh, and they don't. And part of the book is to wake them up and say, Hey, you don't actually know the law and you need to pay attention. Uh, the other, but you also said you get a common, another common response to the book. What's that other response that is pretty common? Well, the other response is the people who think I don't need to know the law. There's this sort of idea which happens in a number of Christian ministries uh, that if I concern myself <clears throat> with the legal issues, that somehow I'm not being faithful. I'm not trusting Jesus. And Todd actually gives a really good example of that particular problem in the book where he talks about um, somebody who has a busted water heater. Well, if the water heater breaks, you don't say pray and trust Jesus and the water heater will stop leaking. You, you hire a plumber. You get somebody who knows how to do this. And just because the law regulates 
relationships between human beings doesn't mean that we should be ignorant of the law. You see that with the Apostle Paul. He seems to be quite aware of what the law is in the places where he is, and he seems to have absolutely no problem insisting upon the protections that the law affords him as a Roman citizen. You have the great example of that when they're getting ready to beat him in Jerusalem, and he asks, are you going to beat me, a Roman citizen, without a trial? And everybody starts to become quite frightened because they may have violated the law. The law is part of God's common grace. It's a good thing. I'm not saying the law always works well. In fact, my experience with the law lets me know how poorly it can work because it's still human beings who are administering it and writing it. But it's better than not having the law and simply refusing to consider the legal ramifications of something is uh, is foolish. By the way, I do want to give a caveat there. Sure. If we do run into a situation where the law requires us to sin, where we are flat out told you have to sin to do this, obviously we're going to have to take the repercussion of the law in those cases. And we, we can't put the state above the demands that Christ has made upon us. But having said that, most of the time that's not the issue. Most of the time, it's just merely a way of organizing things. So, yes, some people think they know the law and they get into trouble from doing that. And another group of people think it doesn't matter what the law is and they get into trouble with doing that. And both of those are foolish responses. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them result in ignorance. And then you you actually had a statement in the back of the book or one of the later chapters where you said that some counselors have inadvertently violated the law or compromised the legal rights of of their counselees, basically, uh, because of their ignorance of the law. Can you expound on that or maybe give an example of where that happens? Yeah, but one of the places that would happen most frequently has to do with um, counselees who get involved in the legal system. By the way, one of the areas that we cover and one of the places that a counselor needs to know the law is our counselees end up in the legal system all the time. We oftentimes don't get them until there's been legal involvement. They're getting divorced. There's a child custody issue. Somebody's gone to jail. Um uh, somebody is uh, otherwise involved in the law because they're becoming bankrupt or something like that. So one of the places that we have real serious problems with the legal system is when the criminal justice system becomes involved in a circumstance. And an easy place to see that would be, let's say there's accusations of abuse or domestic violence where we have parties who are related to one another, we have children, and we have a criminal overlay. And that puts us in a very difficult situation when we are Christians, because we have, on one hand, very serious commandments that have to do with forgiveness, that have to do with maintaining a marriage, and we can't compromise those sorts of things. But on the other hand, we have um, the government is going to come in and intervene and investigate this as a criminal matter. Um, and there's a so. How do we navigate those things? And I've seen situations where somebody with a good heart and, you know, we have this situation like one of my professors in law school used to refer to somebody who has a clean heart and an empty head. You know, they think that they're doing good, but they don't yeah. know what they're talking about. Mm. So you can end up in a situation, let's say the police are investigating uh, a domestic violence situation. And there's been clear physical injury. So this is a felony unquestionably in most states. And when something becomes a felony, 
the prosecution of this belongs to the state, not to the individuals. The reason why when you look at a criminal complaint, for instance, I'm in California, a criminal complaint will read the people of the state of California versus John Doe. So you'll have a counselor who trying to be a good person, trying to reconcile the people. And there can be some counseling problems here, by the way, when I, when I talk about this, I don't want to say that um, I, I've seen very, very often where counselors have collapsed forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and have been un insufficiently careful of the person who's been injured in these situations. So I, I want to bracket that. And I don't want to say that if somebody says, I'm sorry, you should let the person who beat you nearly to death and raped your children back into the house because I, I, I've seen situations that look like that. And I, I'm not talking about that. So please, nobody here. I'm collapsing all those categories in a very complicated process and do a simple thing. But you can have a situation where the counselors determine there's been repentance. We as Christians have obligations to forgive. And they'll go, okay, you've forgiven him. Therefore, you need to forget this and you need to not talk about this. And, you know, you shouldn't talk to the police anymore about this because we need to put this behind us. All right. Well, when you've done that, you've interfered with the prosecution of a crime. The, you know, the, depending upon exactly how that's been done and what you said, the state may come in and say that the counselor's broken the law. The counselors engaged in obstruction of justice or something like witness tampering. And it's very easy for a counselor in their ignorance and their desire to do something good to not merely give bad counsel, which may be the case in this thing, but to actually violate the criminal laws by interfering with the investigation of a crime. So you need to be real careful about what you say and don't say to the people who are involved in here. You can have a you can have a, you have a complicated circumstance which comes on the other side where you're counseling the person who's been accused of a crime. So for instance, one of the things that we have in the law is a defendant has been accused and the defendant pleads not guilty. That isn't technically a statement that I didn't do it. It's more accurately a statement that the government has to prove up the case against me. And criminal, but I, I need to put a plug in here for criminal defense lawyers. Um, the criminal defense lawyer's basic job isn't to get somebody off. The basic job is to require the government to prove that it used all of the appropriate procedures in arresting and prosecuting this particular person. And, and we as Christians should care about that because most of the time, it doesn't result in a guilty person getting off. Mm -hmm. Really, what it does is it requires the government to prove that it went through all the proper procedures to prosecute the guilty person. And we want to limit the government to proper procedures, because if they can put bad guys in jail without proper procedures, they can put innocent people in jail without proper procedure. And so we should care about justice. And justice is, yes, we want bad doers to be prosecuted, but we want the innocent to be protected. Yeah. So the um, the counselor can interfere with the process on the side of the defendant in a way which may not be helpful. Um, so we just need to be real careful how you insert yourself. I'm taking the criminal um, situation as an example because it's easier to see there. And by the way, just so everybody knows, um, I don't know the ins and outs of criminal law myself. I'm not a criminal attorney. I don't do criminal offense. I've never been a prosecutor. And if I were faced with that situation, I would talk with my friends 
who are involved in the criminal justice system to ask them exactly how do I phrase this and do this. So people need to know, like me as a lawyer, I know that I don't know criminal law well enough to be able to know exactly what I'm allowed to do and not do in this. And I would consult with somebody who has expertise in the criminal law when I am counseling with this. If I'm trying to work out a reconciliation between people where there's an underlying crime, I would get advice from them myself. And if I'm going to do that, certainly somebody who has no experience absolutely must do that. Yeah. So I I think just to kind of sum up and maybe help our audience, because I I, I could sense maybe if they're just listening and think, oh my, if if the legal system gets involved, do I I just need to pull back and not say anything, not be involved? Would it be better to say like, no, get advice on what's appropriate to say and what's not appropriate to say, but continue to love and care for and minister and walk with that person through that? Because I I also don't want us to abandon people who are going through really difficult situations and out of fear, right? No, absolutely. In fact, that's, we have a chapter where we talk about that. Um, I had a friend of mine, Tanya, she helped write that chapter. She's done a great deal of work throughout the entire domestic violence situation. She's been involved with all aspects of that. And she helps victims of domestic violence walk through that process. She does that in the context of the criminal justice system. I ever come in and talk to my classes. We do not want to abandon people. If you're counseling somebody and they've been accused of a crime, do not abandon them. They need somebody to go through them with this, even if they've sinned very, very grievously. And if they've been injured in this process, we don't abandon them. They need our help even more so. I do not want any counselor to abandon somebody because they've been become involved with the the legal system, whether it's in the civil or the criminal side, those people need counsel probably more than other people do because the pressures, one of the reasons you wrote the book is to underscore the pressure that our counselees are going to experience when they're involved in the criminal justice system or involved in the civil legal system at any respect. So please do not leave. What we want you to do is find out how to help them. That'd be no different than if you're a doctor and you're a regular general practitioner and you find out all of a sudden one of your patients has heart disease or cancer, which is beyond your expertise. Well, you don't go, I'm sorry, you know, you're hurt too bad. So I guess we're just going to let the disease take its course. You find out how to help them. We go get them in touch with the people who can provide the proper expertise. We get the proper expertise ourselves. We don't abandon people because their life has become difficult. They need it perhaps more than everybody else does, or certainly in a different way. Well, I actually really appreciated when I saw, even just in the table of contents and then looking through the book, I really appreciated the fact that you you and the team of contributors had a section on how to walk through a counselee and understanding what a counselee facing the legal uh, legal world is. It was just a, a, a great reminder of that it's not just about us and protecting ministries and protecting counselors. Uh, it's recognizing that we are ministering to people who are in these situations and we need to be aware of, of what's going on in their lives too. So uh, thank you for, for con, uh, having that section in the book. One other thing about that um, that I think might be important here too. Um, uh, because of the changing legal landscape, I've received more than one 
contact from a church ministry where they're saying, maybe we should just get out of biblical counseling altogether. Let's just turn these people over to some kind of state licensed authority and let's just stop doing our work. And, And that is not the right response either. If what we're doing is valuable, and both of us believe that it's very, very valuable, it's core ministry, abandoning people and not giving them the resources which we know and believe are critical for their care would be maybe spiritual malpractice. It would be giving up our things. No, certainly we're not to the place now where we're being persecuted or nobody's going to jail right now for being a biblical counselor. All right. So it's not that dire. Could it become that dire? Yeah. I mean, the history of the church shows that it can be very difficult at various times. Um, but you know, the Paul didn't stop ministering just because he kept getting arrested. And, And if they are willing to be that diligent and the church has been that diligent to bring us the Bible and theology and the church, then we certainly need to continue to be that diligent when we're facing nowhere near the level of persecution, even the Christians are facing around the world today. Yeah. So we have some difficulties. We can navigate them. Yeah. I think it's always wise when the primary motivation is fear to step back and consider that significantly because Fear is a tool in the hand, can be a tool in the hand of the enemy to make us do foolish things. And if churches are, and and it's not just churches, it's, it can be parachurch ministries, colleges, seminaries, etc. Uh, afraid of liability or legal issues, things like that. I think we have to stop and think. Hmm, what's what's a bigger picture, bigger motivation? Um, not that we ignore those things, but. Well, I mean, if you open up just a regular business, you face the potential of liability. Mm-hmm. There's across the street. I'm I'm in Pasadena on Colorado Boulevard where the Rose Parade gets to yeah. go. So I get to open up my balcony, watch the parade once here, by the way, which is really cool. Um, That's a great and, spot. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, there's a number of businesses up and down the street here. Every single one of those businesses faces the potential for liability just by opening up their doors to the public. And they're all open and they're not frightened to sell food and have stairways and escalators and all the rest, even though people do get sued for getting sick from eating and people fall down escalators and employees sue their employers. They're still open. It would be kind of foolish for us to give up our work just because we're frightened that the law might intervene. If you do anything, the law might intervene. Yeah, no, that's a that's a even strengthening the argument all the more and because of what we do is so important we we can't we can't give it up oh well edward man thank this is i have so many more questions to ask but our time is slipping away uh so we have a segment at the end called two minute favorites okay are you ready for this all right i will do my best all right well i've had people answer almost the whole list and i've had people answer about three questions so you know it's not a contest so here we go what is your favorite food? A Mexican food. Favorite color? Uh, blue. Favorite sport? Baseball. Favorite sports team? Dodgers. Favorite gift you've ever received? I'd have to say my wife telling me that she's pregnant. Hmm. Favorite gift you've ever given? Wow. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Uh, favorite candy. Favorite candy. 
I'm not much of a candy person. I know that's just kind of a weird thing. My family is complete. In fact, my youngest son one time, um, when he was quite small, realized that being an adult, I could eat candy whenever I wanted to. And he was baffled by that, that why I ever did not eat candy. <laughs> I, I know it's strange, but I actually really don't eat candy. All right. Uh, do you have a favorite ice cream flavor? Yeah, let's see. Um, I, I probably like like pina colada favor, you know, mm-hmm. co- coconut and pineapple. Favorite that might be favorite book of the Bible. Oh man, the one that I'm reading at the moment. All right, favorite book outside of scripture. Favorite book outside of scripture. Um, right now I've been reading the collected poems of Edward Taylor. He was a Puritan who lived in pre-colonial um, America. He was actually friends with uh, Jonathan Edwards' dad. Hmm. So he wrote a series of meditations getting ready for communion. Then he kept this as a private volume. Then he gave it to Yale University at his death. And it was redis- a couple of his poems were published earlier, but um, in the 30s. Somebody going through all of the old books at Yale found this book of poems. And so it's a series of meditations for his preparing to take communion where he's thinking about his own sinfulness and the goodness and gratefulness of God. I found them quite edifying. That might be my favorite. Well, there you go. Well, that wraps up our two minutes and wraps up our interview time. So Edward Wilde, thanks so much for being with us on 1514 today. Thank you so very much for having me, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.